What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast, Foot Injuries in Sports. We are live here at the Memorial Hermann Sports Medicine Update with Dr. Taggart Govain. I am your host, Sean Reedy. Join our conversations at sportsmedicinebroadcast.com backslash foot injuries in sports. Doc, that was a pretty good talk, great talk to, to listen to. So we're going to, obviously, with not going through the the talk on on the, the broadcast, we kind of want to go back through some of your topics that you did. Um, so for me, the first one that was very interesting to, to me was foot injuries increasing in sports actually was the kind of one yeah that we're seeing that i mean it's a real thing and some of it is is athletes are bigger stronger faster uh some of it again is and i mentioned this a little bit in the talk is is back to the type of shoe wear that we're really wearing uh, athletes want agility they want speed they want lightweight everything that we're putting on their bodies is geared towards this right uh, less cumbersome equipment allows you to be faster in your natural athletic ability but we're sacrificing stability at the same time so these shoes don't support the foot the way that they used to you can take a runner shoe or even a wide receiver shoe and you can bend it into into a little folded piece and it doesn't support anything so to think that that athlete could plant and the cleats catch and it's going to support the foot and prevent him from having any sort of rotational injury, you know, I, I just don't think that the, the shoes are capable of doing that. That's not a knock on the shoe company. I get what they're trying to do, uh, but it's it's just the reality of sports these days. So we're not obviously trying to throw a, a shoe company under the bus. No, like, never. you know, blow, blowouts happen at, 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 at all levels and anything. But so, I mean, we're, we're, we're breeding thoroughbreds. We're, we're creating bigger monsters we're we're building faster athletes we're building stronger athletes yeah we're we're wanting that little bit of that that little edge so a lighter shoe have you seen have you seen anything where due to that because i mean this has been going on the lighter shoe aspect has been going on for five to ten years already so has that started to kind of come back around a little bit in any not, not, not yet. I, I think that there's still you have to get the research to really support that, right? So there's still um, it's still being looked at in a lot of avenues. I, I think that as far as you know, our, our heavier linemen go, we're we're keeping them in those more rigid shoes because they're supporting a lot more weight. They're also engaging with a lot more of a weighted uh, position. But our skill positions, it's still all about speed. So it's it's tough to kind of shine away from that. But uh, the literature will bear that out over time, or, or at least the research will bear that out. But I, I don't know the answer if it's going to swing the pendulum all the way back the other way. We're going to be wearing old school block white shoes out there. I don't know. I don't think so. But um, we'll, we'll see where the happy medium is at some point. So that that increases is now we're up to 30 to 40 percent of injuries in the foot and ankle kind of covering sports i know you had mentioned about again back to your slide which we which they might not have unless they've got onto the to the facebook live feed but that that is across the nfl that's across there there was obviously a little bit of variation in your numbers and they don't sure, have to be perfect, sure we're, we're seeing them everywhere we're seeing them in college athletes high school athletes nfl athletes pro basketball athletes soccer players i mean foot and ankle injuries are, are very prevalent it's it's crazy to see that when you think hey we're doing so much better to increase the i guess decrease the likelihood of injury 
that something actually truly is increasing, but it's it's understandable. It's the only part of the body we're seeing that in right now, so it's, it's important to note. That's crazy. Um, so going into your injuries, you want, you want to talk quickly kind of on, give us a, a little preview or a little understanding of, of your talk in regard to injury. I really wanted to focus on some of the injuries that – one can be troublesome, uh, two are the more prevalent things. So we went over simple ankle sprains and such, but the high ankle sprain aspect of that in the talk, I think is really important just because of where we're going as far as treatment of those. And, and those can be much more stubborn injuries and last longer. And it's harder for the athlete to get back and it takes more time. Um, some of the fractures that I highlighted, the Jones fracture, which is the base fifth metatarsal fracture, those have a problem with non-union sometimes. And we've also now uh, started to operate on more and more of those as our athletes are having them. Um, you know, other injuries like the plantar plate uh, injury, which is also known as the turf toe, uh, are important to know about. And I kind of go into the details and the ins and outs of each of those and some of the treatment protocols. But I really wanted to highlight some of the what I consider to be the really important injuries that are keeping athletes off of the field for a period of time. And then what are we doing to work them back into uh, their practice and back into game play and those kinds of things? Because that's what our jobs are as our athletic trainers, as surgeons, as anybody who cares for athletes. We're trying to get that athlete back onto the field as quickly and efficiently and safely as possible through these injuries. So going into your injuries, and um, especially in like fifth metatarsal, um, it was you. I think you said a number of like ten percent non-union. That's on, correct. On on surgical cases, or is that on? No, that's across the that's board. Across the board. On yeah, that's across the board. So there there were two separate slides. The first one uh, talked about it as a ten percent non-union rate, and and that's based on the blood supply to the bone, Absolutely. really. Um, but the second slide was in conjunction with refracture rate and non-union, and so those are actually non-unions post-operatively um, that we do see. And sometimes they're asymptomatic. And there are some uh, you know, leading foot and ankle guys in the country who will allow their athletes to play as long as clinically they're doing well. We may still see the fracture on x-ray. It may not be completely healed. We may be somewhere uh, within that. Is this a delayed union versus a non-union? Um, but we will allow them to play if they're sufficiently clinically healed and we'll watch it. Now, that being said, a frank non-union postoperatively in general, we will try to revise at some point if it's indicated, but it's not always. Now, I, I the the fifth meta, the fifth metatarsal non-union for me it's been, it was kind of a crazy thing as I, I had an athlete that had multiple non-unions both feet it was kind of one of those where we were we were adjusting diet we were adjusting right I know one th one thing that you had mentioned is also like vitamin D Correct. intake and 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 things like that and we were we were testing all of that those different things and looking at that as like he was one of those quick high speed athletes that he would just be able to he was very quick, very cut, very, um, one of those that you just kind of think that it's like, those are the ones you see in it. And it's been crazy that as I've been seeing athletes like that build, just kind of like you, you were talking about the, the, the speed and the shoe and, and all of these different things that, you know, that's a lot more prevalent. It's, it, it's crazy to see that type of athlete that is getting that type of injury and, recurring injury and almost well, we're like seeing it more and and sometimes you know the non-unions are either based on an endocrinopathy like they're vitamin d deficient which 
there was a talk today that he said 75% or whatever the number was. I mean, the number's high, you know, uh, I think every study probably has its own percentage of what that is, but we've tested athletes in the professional setting and, um, there's a high rate of vitamin D deficiency and down into the low numbers where we're giving these guys 50,000 international units a week to try to get them back up, to try to get them healed. Another aspect we didn't necessarily get into in the talk, but is, is deformity that's intrinsic to the athlete. So a cavus foot deformity where you have a little bit of a higher arch and you roll out laterally a little bit more. We also see those type of fractures in those athletes because the, the uh, biomechanics of their foot is sort of off and, and overloading that lateral border. So sometimes in an athlete that had one on the right side, comes back, has one on the left side, we have to really look at that athlete and see, you know, we can do pedobarographs where we're looking at the weight bearing of the foot to see, are we just really overloading that lateral side? And it's really a deformity of the foot or the ankle uh, that's causing that overload and potentially propagating that issue for the patient. So now for that patient, I know I'm going to jump around here a little bit, so, okay. so stay with me. Moving target. Because, I mean, yeah, exactly. So I know during, with your, your Liz Frank midfoot sprain, midfoot fracture, sprain fracture, t- portion of it you had talked about actually offloading them with um with an insult insert Mm -hmm. now is that something that you might actually utilize something utilize an insert or or somewhat to offload or change the actual foot dynamic or foot movement we can yeah we 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 will give them an insert into their shoe and it's actually an orthotic that if i've operate on you or not for the first six months uh, after you have this injury whether you have the surgery or not you're going to have this insert in your shoe to protect that lateral border. And essentially, it changes the way that the heel falls. It changes the way that the foot sits so that the lateral border of the shoe is more offloaded. And so, yeah, the, the medial arch support is what we were talking about with the list yes. frank, but this is more of a lateral offloading support for the, the fifth met fractures. Now, is that something that, uh, that changes that athlete's performance or movement? movement in future as well and have you seen any issues because that was my one thought when you were talking about all athletes hate inserts maybe that's no gross generalization i don't know but anything you put in a shoe that they feel like is going to slow them down as you're kind of alluding to they're not going to enjoy too much but it's usually for a short period of time. Now, some of them, if if they really have some bit of a deformity that we can prevent them from getting injured, usually after you talk to them and they sort of see the science behind it, I, I think most will, will come to grips with it. But um, it, it's it's a tough talk with an athlete trying to convince them to put anything in their shoe. Interesting. So back to the Liz Frank, um, one of the questions that I saw or that you talked about was a change in the actual – mechanism of injury of the Liz Frank injury where in in my history and, and and working with a lot of football working with a lot of rodeo working with stuff like that you get that plantar flexion with axial load boom it's there but you kind of talked about a twisting rotational right. aspect of, of an injury as well correct exactly so the classic teaching was always the plantar flexed foot with an axial load onto the back of the heel mm-hmm. and if you look all the 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 cartoons that were made to yeah it it shows it shows the defensive lineman coming down on the back of the heel or or what have you um but uh, there there's a group out of charlotte that's put together some nice work with the nfl that has shown um as as athletes are are getting these as non-contact injuries and it's related to this uh rotational event that's occurring in the foot where they're 
they're they're basically pushing off of their foot. Their body's coming around at such an angle that it's causing a torque in the midfoot, and they're getting these ligamentous injuries at the midfoot, specifically at the Lis Frank. And so um, we're starting to see that. It's starting to bear out a little bit more, and that's actually been said as the more common mechanism of action to happen. Now, again, this is different from the fracture dislocation list, Frank. This is more the ligamentous type. And, you know, these are the ones that are on the forefront of everybody's thought process of, of list, Frank, because that then bleeds you into the conversation about, do you fix these? Do you fuse these? What do you do in the young athlete versus the old athlete? And so, uh, or older athlete, I should say. Um, but it's a long conversation that, that goes in and out. But I, I think there's a lot of opinions on that at this point. But um, my, my personal opinion is you repair these when they're needed to be and you save fusion for down the road. Uh, but there are some who argue for a purely ligamentous injury that you should fuse primarily. Interesting. Well, I know that I, I know when you were talking about your, the, the arch of the foot and, and, and utilizing the arch in being like a, ro- a Roman structure and the, the small fractures that were there. It, it was very interesting to see, actually see that. And, and a couple of weeks ago, I was out in Big Bend National Park and they were, we were walking through some of the, the rock structures that they have out there and seeing those, those window-like right. structures. And as you see some, and you, as you go into some of those older structures and now see how some of them fall just by having one small piece fractured off, it's crazy to... I guess by seeing that and, and with your, with your representation of that, it really showed that how you can actually have a very unstable foot. Correct. Um, with that. And I, I thought yeah, that was the, really good. The Roman arch configuration with that keystone and that mm-hmm. middle cuneiform base second, uh, uh, metatarsal interaction or their articulating joint is really the keystone of that. It's recessed back a little. It's a smaller uh, cuneiform with not as much depth. And so it really sits like that triangular uh, keystone that you would see in the arch formation. And um, when it's disrupted, it's it's very detrimental to the midfoot stability for sure. So w- one of the things that you mentioned about, about those two is the mist in, in ERs, EDs, um, doctor's offices, what are some things that as the athletic trainer we can look at and or we can, I guess, be more cognizant of to make sure that, hey, this might be something that we need to potentially do some other imaging about. And, right. and I know I want to go into imaging as well because there was some some talks on that as well, or some some comments on that as well that you had. But what are some other things that we as athletic trainers can really hey nail down on? I don't want to pile on my ER brothers over there because no. they're doing a good job, but they they don't necessarily always have the capability to do weight bearing films. And so, um, unfortunately, without the weight bearing films, I think you can miss some of these more subtle injuries because a displacement is only on the order of millimeters. This is not a wildly displaced fracture dislocation. These are the ones that um, when you do weight bear them, you have to weight bear them on the same plate with the opposite foot to compare it side by side. So you can really say, 
oh yeah, it's different than the other side, right? It's wider in that uh, one, two base metatarsal space. Um, and so they are missed and, and they're missed in orthopedic offices too. So, so we're guilty of that, but 30% is a big number. I mean, that's, that's almost a third of, of every list Frank that comes through is potentially missed. Um, but that being said, I think we're getting better about it. I think when you talk about list Frank, you talk about imaging list Frank, I really try to hammer home the weight-bearing images because that really gives you the diagnostic ability to see those. But from a trainer standpoint, when you don't have an x-ray machine and you're in the field house and you're working with an athlete, I, I mentioned the plantar bruising. That's, that's a high sign. Um, dorsal swelling, that's a high sign. Inability to return to practice. You know, if they have a twisting event or, or a big dog pile and there's some axial load that may or may not have happened in there and, and they come limping off the field and they just can't get back in. And then this starts not just that day, but the next day and then the next day and, and things start to to move down the road a little bit. But that athlete cannot get back into full uh, contact. That's a high sign that something's going on. And so, you know, we. we as athletes uh, and, and as physicians too, we, we want them to be on the field and they want to be on the field. And so I, I get that mentality of pushing through things and, and hey, I, I'm not injured, I'm just a little hurt and I can play through it, coach, and I get all that. But um, there are moments when as the athletic trainer, I think you have to protect that athlete from himself a little bit and say, no, I see you, you're not running like you run. And, and the athletic trainers are the ones who are going to see that right off. They're going to know that he's not running his routes. He can't put his foot in the ground and push off and, and move the way that he could before this injury happened. And so I think when you start to see those things and it's been, uh, you know, some days down the road, it's time for a real evaluation. And that's when we like to get them in the orthopedic office, if not the day of, you know, when, when these sorts of things start to add up. So when we're dealing with these midfoot, like we're going to call them a midfoot sprain yeah. because it's a, because it's a, Hey, We've seen you, we've evaluated you, we've, you know, been treating you for a few days and you're not getting better. Like what's our, what's our window that, you, that uh, obviously per perfect world because, you know, we have athletes that don't want to go, parents that don't want to take him, but what's our window that you like to see that, Hey, if it's not getting, if, if we're not seeing improvement, if we're not seeing, seeing those things, we need to potentially do something else. If there's clinical signs, swelling, bruising, you missed a couple of practices, time to come in. Gotcha. You know, if if there's no swelling, no bruising, no clinical signs, it just hurts. And maybe you can let that go for a little bit. But again, you have to look at the athlete. If they can't do what they were supposed to do and there's an event that happened, then something changed at time zero. I, I'd love to see them sooner than later. Um but the reality is I don't sometimes, you know, I'll see them two weeks down the road or even three weeks. I've had them wander in at six weeks down the road when they just haven't been able to get all the way back. Um, and that can be detrimental to the foot because once you've lost that midfoot stability, you're, you're starting to lose articular congruity. And so things start to wear in a bad way. And these are the patients I talked about that, that have long-term problems and, and lose strength in the midfoot and really have some debilitating arthritis that can occur down the road because of the incongruity and the continue to weight bear in that setting. I, th I think one of the things too, you said about like, we're not trying to obviously pick on a, an ER or, or, or a freestanding or, or whatever that we're sending to is something about the athletic trainers, just knowing that, Hey, you went to an ER, but you did not get the weight bearing um, us being right. educated more about right. the x-rays themselves. Yeah, it's, a, it's a great point because it gives you some power go, okay, you went to the ER, we sent you to the local urgent care. Did they make you stand on your foot when they took the x-rays? No. 
okay, well, you've come back. You've missed two practices now. You're still hurting. I still see some swelling. Let's get you into the ortho office and let's really get this thing hammered out and make sure you're okay. Absolutely. That helps out. And I mean, everybody working together, it's just things are things are available yeah. and yeah. things are not. All in the best interest of the athlete. Absolutely. So um, talking about ankle sprains, we went into – you went into the obvious, the um, medial ankle sprain, lateral ankle sprain. I've seen personally. I'm going and I'm going to say something about like things I've been seeing recently. Granted, I, I work sometimes in a different patient population, depending upon where I'm where I'm at at the time. But I've seen a lot of inversion ankle sprains with like or lateral lateral rolled ankle sprains, or I guess eight anterior ATF type ankle sprains with bony block or bony bump medial involvement where they're like, yeah, it hurts all across. And it's kind of one of those things that it's been like, I'm dealing with so many athletes that are now coming in and it's no longer the, yeah, it hurts here. Uh, Oh, that's ATF pain or, Oh, that's deltoid ligament pain. It's like, I'm having medial and lateral pain is that how do we kind of differentiate from that obviously mechanism of injury but when you have that patient that doesn't that that's complaining of both sides that you're obviously your special tests are causing pain they've on both sides it's it's tough because nothing is a pure inversion nothing is a pure eversion you know i i get a lot of combo uh in my exam, when I'm looking at an ankle sprain, there's often medial and lateral pain. To what degree those important? Uh, other constitutional signs is important. Um, stability, so there's some testing that can be done, drawer tests, tilt tests, to really put those in particular ligaments in areas of maximal stress. And 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 uh, by doing that, you can kind of whittle down your thought process to, okay, I think this is primarily an ATFL injury, or or maybe ATFL and CFL deltoid minimally. Um, you know, they grade out ankle sprains one to three and that's, that's all great. But without an MRI, you really can't tell how much of a partial tear or even sometimes is it a complete, um, but these testings will give you a better idea. And so in a perfect world, it would be one ligament each time and we would focus on that and it'd be great because we could really get that back, uh, in good shape. But the reality is it's not. So your experience is real. Um, and then the other side of that is within an inversion injury, since you use that as the example, there are some times where we get, uh, the talus, you know, slammed against the medial malleolus or the tibial plafond. And there is actual edema in the bone, Mm -hmm. um, under the subcortical plate. And that takes a while to go. That's like a bone bruise, you know, Mm -hmm. and sometimes that can last six weeks. And so the lateral ankle is feeling better, but the medial side is not. Uh, I have a, it's not a, it's not a written in stone, but at some point around six weeks, if the athlete really, or anyone for that matter, has really not gotten better, we may be going to the MRI machine at that point because we're going to look for cartilage injury. We're going to look for osteochondral defect, things that you can't necessarily pick up on the x-ray that are subtle things that may be there um, and maybe be the reason why that we just haven't progressed in the way that we should. Potentially even see that bony bruise. Correct. Yeah, we we would definitely see it on the MRI. Absolutely. So go into some of the, the, the high ankle. I know one of the big topics, and you actually talked about it, was the the new fixation of the high ankle sprain that we are we question now and we've gotten questions from parents as athletic trainers well you know he'll be he could be back in two weeks 
for that. That's easy. That's that we we just need where where's the doc to do that or or what? Can right. Kind of yeah. expand on that for us. And that's why I brought it up in the setting because I think you guys are going to get just crushed with these questions Absolutely. on the forefront, and, and then that leads to my office and and such. Um, but it's it's the new thing, and and so I I want it. And I always want to be cautious with a young athlete in the professional setting. It's it's not less cautious, but there there is more capability. I think they're adults. They've decided this is their career field, et cetera. They're more willing to undertake the risks, or or maybe more aware. Um, in the younger child, in the high school athlete, this is where I think it's really the more controversial level because they've been doing it in college and, and in the NFL setting uh, for some time. That doesn't mean everybody's running around with these implants, but uh, from a high school standpoint. I really think that that's not something that I would promote. Um, if there is true disruption of the stabilizing ligaments of the syndesmosis, then that's an indication for surgery, and I get that. But that's also, for me, it's a failure of conservative care first. So I'm going to have you in a boot for a while. We're going to be doing rehab for a while, and you will have failed everything that I can do to keep you away from the risks of surgery first. Now, if that happens and we go and we repair okay, then I think we're all settled that that was the right move. But I, I always caution to be too hasty to, to jump to something because someone once said if if it was better in two weeks after surgery, then did you really need the surgery anyway? You know, and there's something to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what is your guide for for these high ankles for obviously how, how do you like, how do you like them treated? How do you like, I guess, what's the, what's the not quick or, 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 or whatever, but what's your advice for us in, in, in treating? High ankles are a little different than your low ankle sprain. In general, low ankle sprains, I want weight-bearing in a boot or a brace as quickly as possible. High ankle, I will generally give a little bit more time off of the foot um, just because the instability goes up the leg a bit. But it's it's boot or sometimes cast immobilization if needed. Um, but we get into that period for about the first four to six weeks. A couple of weeks off, and then we're in the stabilizing boot uh, or cast, as I said, for up to six weeks. And then at that point, we start to really work with the therapist, start working in the trainer room and see. But it's baby steps. It's it's come out of the boot and do a little bit. We're working on range of motion. We're working on some external rotation. We're working on more mobilizing the ankle joint itself than we are working on any sort of agility or, or athletic motion whatsoever. That probably won't athlete probably won't be ready until eight weeks, potentially sometimes even longer. And then it still may even take out to 10 or 12 weeks before that injury is fully recovered. So, you know, I don't have a rigid protocol because everybody's a little bit different, but those are the generalities that we look to do. I know, I know for me in the, the high ankle sprain kids, it's like you're, you're, you're booting them to try to, to, to protect that joint. And then all of a sudden you're just leading up the, up the body of other issues <laughs> because you're having hip issues because of their, sure. their, their, their gait change and they're having calf issues because of the, the, the lack of flexibility and mobility, like you were talking your first thing that you're coming back to. And so uh, I, I understand that. And it's kind of one of those things that we're going to battle no matter what. And no one has a shoe the right size to meet the <laughs> height of that boot. That's for sure. <laughs> so kind of one of the, not to end obviously, but one of the, the, last things that you kind of talked about was like the planter plate, the turf toe stuff, um, 
kind of go into that if you could, because there's some there's some different aspects to that that with with surgical interventions that were you know I some of the sesamoid stuff that you know you don't see a whole lot. Right. I, I think the the sesamoid fracture complicates things if that's where the disruption has become. Some people are born with bipartite sesamoid bones, which meaning uh, there are two bones with sort of a fibrous union of sorts between them. Um, and so the, the, the separation of the plate can come through that area as well. Um, those are those are harder to fix. There was a, a question in the audience about what do you do with that? Do you excise the bone? And, and, and some people would say yes. Some people would say no. Um I tend to err on the side of if, if there's a smaller portion that can be removed and we can do a soft tissue repair directly to bone, that's good. There's not a lot of great techniques for repairing a sesamoid because it's so small. Um, the little screws that you can put in there are very tiny and how much holding power do they have? Uh, some people use cerclage techniques that, that can be uh, helpful, but the problem with the turf toe, whether it's operated on or not, is that it's stiff when you're said and done with. And sometimes operating on them can add potentially more stiffness than what you would have had if treated conservatively. But these are real injuries because the, that balance of the medial column at the big toe, um, the push-off strength that's there can really be affected by this injury badly. I, I remember coming out of grad school several years ago, or coming out of undergrad, one of my first patients going into grad school was a bipartite sesamoid, mm -hmm. and it was, it, it was, it was just like you, you you say it was. We ended up doing a surgery, and having the stiffness and and everything. And I mean, he was an all conference. He was an all conference shortstop. Everything, right? Who, who plays on his toes? Yeah, athlete <laughs> plays on his toes is in that position and. It was crazy to see the, the misery that he was in for something so what you would think of as small. And it was very difficult to regain everything we needed right. to regain on him due to right. that. That mobility is is really the issue there and you, you always have a balance right mm -hmm. the balance is between stability and mobility i can immobilize something in a cast forever and it's going to be stable because it'll never have any mobility left in it or i can be less stable of a construct or a a protective nature meaning a cast or such and err on the side of mobility but there has to be a healthy balance in there somewhere and that's dependent on uh, the injury that's also dependent on how the patient is coming along and so you know you, that's where we have to key in on what we're seeing how the the joint feels in our hands what level of mobility we're getting but, it, but in general, we want to move those injuries as quickly as possible. So if we are going to operate, we have to create a situation with our repair that's strong enough to tolerate at least passive range of motion early. That way we, we try to reduce the amount of fibrotic changes around the joint and, you know, caps or shrinkage, et cetera, things that happen to reduce mobility in that area. It was, it, it, it's, it's crazy, like you said, it, it, for something that for something so small that it, it does cause so many issues and 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 thinking about it in, in terms of that now going back to i guess kind of one of your 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 final your final points was the the achilles rupture and the, the change in your surgical technique from the old school not so much old school but the larger um the, the larger open, the larger, larger fixation of the, right. of the actual 
right? I mean, we, sure. we used to make some, and sometimes you still have to, Absolutely. right? Sometimes Absolutely. you have to be able to see what you're doing. Um, but the large incision, the, the posterior, uh, large incision, um, it's, it's, it's a big deal because it strips blood supply away from an already injured area. The peritoneum is a tissue layer that surrounds the tendon. Um, and that's in a very, a very important layer because it separates the gliding of the tendon in the back of the ankle from the subcutaneous tissue in the skin. Um, and so it allows it sort of free range of motion in there, so to speak. But if you disrupt all of that and then that scars down and then you have all of this large suture that's in there, then potentially, um, it could be a setup for, for some problems and, and a, a longer road, uh, down for rehab to get your motion back, to get your dorsiflexion back, et cetera. Now that doesn't mean it's wrong. That, that was the gold standard for forever to do it in that fashion and, and try to be gentle to the soft tissues as we would as surgeons. Um, the newer technique, uh, as I said, it's not appropriate for all scenarios, but for most, uh, it works very well. And, and with a smaller incision, a four centimeter incision, we're disrupting less of the native anatomy, still getting a sound repair and still able to progress the patient very aggressively um, and get them into rehab and get them moving. Um, but but it's only as successful on all parts, right? The patient has to buy into the rehab. You have to have a good therapist. You have to have the good trainer. I always say to the patient, my part's the quickest and easiest part because it takes an, less than an hour to repair that tendon. The long haul play is the rehab part and getting that strength back and getting back to sport. And some people don't, you know, running backs that make their living, putting their foot in the ground and planting and running, um, it's tough. You lose 10 or 15% of your overall calf strength after rupturing your Achilles that you don't get back no matter how hard you try, that can be detrimental to a career. So we really want to prevent atrophy. We really want to get them rehabbing quicker so that we don't lose that muscle bulk and that strength. It was interesting, especially when in a in an injury that you think of in your your weekend warrior athletes, but obviously we do see in the in this in the sports in the sports world with athletes that are competing in this is obviously not as high in high school, but in professional sports and in, and in, and in collegiate sports and things like that. But you you think of it more in the probably the off the off the couch type athletes that go out on the weekends. But the difference being is 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 that aspect of um, that. I guess I forget what I was trying to go off. Was, so was much to, in foot and ankle, it's hard. I, I, I know. <laughs> I, I'm just, I, we're, we're, we're towards the end of the day, and we're uh, we're trying to build into. I, I had a really good point. I, I know I did. So, but anyway. So, well, I guess um, anything else that you have to you want to add to kind of our conversation here? Sure. I, I think you know it. It's it's important that we have these interactions between our trainers and our docs. I think this is a, a, a great forum to discuss these problems because, you know, the, the trainers who are on the front end really are our eyes and ears out there. And, and, yes, we come to the games and we're watching the players then, but we can't be at every practice and we can't be there uh, often 
uh, when the trainers are there and they're right at time zero and can sort of describe the events or at least give us some background to that and and then how the athlete has done over a period of time. Um, that sort of communication and relationship, I think, is huge. I think that's how we foster um, our abilities to get those athletes back um, in a really good way and, and keep everybody on the field and keep them healthy. So I really enjoyed today. I was very thankful to be asked to come here. I think it was really great. Um, and to see all the trainers from around Houston was really neat. Well, we appreciate you. We appreciate everything you coming in and you giving us this talk and also giving us this, a little bit of extra time. So um, well, that's been the Sports Medicine Broadcast. We're finishing up day one here at Memorial Hermann Sports Medicine Update 2019 with Dr. Govain. Um, thank you so much. If you want to follow us, check out the conversation on sportsmedicinebroadcast.com, foot, in, foot injuries in sports. Thanks, Sean. Thank you so much.